Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 26. Wow, in the previous episode we had a lengthy and weighty discussion about this narrative that Jesus went into that started with the Jewish leadership taking offense at him, healing that disabled man on the Sabbath. Uh, and He starts out just saying that he is mimicking God the Father because God shows that even on the Sabbath he is doing work to sustain and maintain creation to alleviate suffering and that the son is mimicking that that he is taking priority of alleviating suffering and attending to the needs of humanity over the jewish maybe cultural and ritualistic things that they have implemented on an oral sense and we're trying to display that to the leadership and then from there he goes into this crazy discussion about how he he has been given authority from the Father, but he still is in subordination to the Father with judgment and giving life. And then at the end of our discussion, Jesus goes into this super, super end times uh, talk about there being a time in the future and happening now with people experiencing resurrection in some sense with this new life of following Messiah being born again and that there's another time when there's almost like a second resurrection that he is hinting at when people are going to be raised from the dead and are going to be judged and how uh, Jesus has saying that he has been given authority from the Father to execute that judgment but at the end he's giving all that authority back to the Father um, and we both are kind of still reeling from that. Uh, I'll give you time to, to process that before we get into it, but it's hard to review whenever you, you have such weighty things like that. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, we talked about the fact that it, it appears kind of early on in the story. You know, Jesus has only really taken up the mantle of his ministry because John uh, is presumably in prison. We haven't really seen that in the text yet, but we know that's coming. And he's laying this heavy stuff on him, and he's not done. He's got more to go. We stopped the podcast to do it, but he's not done. So we're going to pick up there when you're ready. Let's do it. All right. Well, we're going to be picking up in verse 30. This is, uh, let me make sure we're in John chapter 5, verse 30. That's important. And then, uh, just real quick, so so think about the steps that he's gone through. Number one, they were mad about Jesus healing on the Sabbath, and then they were even more upset when they thought that he was equating himself with God. His excuse or explanation was, well, God's working, so I'm working, I'm just doing what I see him doing, and then he makes this claim he's going to do greater things. And he talks, like you mentioned, Samuel, this idea of uh, this authority for for, uh, the power of life and to 
uh, judge and even to receive honor. He talked about the resurrections. And as if that wasn't enough, now he's going to continue uh, and we're going to hear a lot about witnesses. And, and this is kind of Jesus's way of saying, I've said all this stuff, and now I'm going to show you why you should believe me. So here we go. Verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, this, okay, uh, I just want to say this out loud again, because I don't want some people somewhere getting mad at me because they somehow think that we're saying that Jesus is not equal with God. And we're not saying that. What we're trying to get across here is how Jesus seems to be viewing himself or presenting himself And in this whole section, it's all about the subordination. It's about unity as opposed to equality. So he says, I can do nothing on my own. He's he's not claiming equality with the Father, but unity. And then he acknowledges that he is a judge, and he declares that his judgment is just. But his explanation for this is, as I hear. And it's important that we understand, well, what is Jesus hearing? He's hearing whatever the Father is saying to him, presumably through the Holy Spirit, if we can kind of make that connection as it might relate to the way we live our lives, right? But he explains his judgment is just because it's according to God's will and not his own. And Samuel, I want you to go back because you love the beginning of your Bible. <laughs> what is the very, 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 very earliest place where we see a clash of wills? I think it's right after the creation of the heavens and the earth when Adam and Eve decide for themselves what is good with what to eat and what not to eat within the garden Um which leads to to death for them. Exactly. So it's in the Garden of Eden that they try to define good and evil for themselves instead of trusting God's definition. And in doing that, they elevate their own will above God's. What's important about this, now we're nowhere near this part of the story, but way down the line somewhere, we're going to see Jesus in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where that divine reversal is going to take place, and Jesus is going to choose God's will above his own, and it's going to result in life instead of death. So, super important picture. We need to see that. But I I just, I, I want to focus on this. Notice, Samuel, that Jesus understands. He's claiming, even here, that he has his own will. It's separate from God. And if Jesus has his own will, just like we do, he's walking around like a human, just like we do, we see in him that he is choosing his free will. Why do we have free will? It is to choose God's will above our own. 
And Jesus does that. He elevates God's will, and that's exactly what we need to do, what we should be trying to do all the time. And so, you know, just sort of as a side note, if Jesus is saying all of these things right now, kind of connect us back to the beginning of the story, it was God who decided that true justice on that day and in that place would be to heal that man. And Jesus just carried it out. It's good stuff. It, I hope it's eye-opening for people to see that Jesus had his own will and it was something that he fought and he wrestled with. We saw that back in the desert when he was fighting the temptations from the Satan. And here's another example of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so having said all of that, that was kind of like a great segue. It finishes out what we talked about before. And now Jesus is going into this new uh, topic, if you will. He's going to now start talking about witnesses. And so let's look at verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Okay. That kind of comes across a little bit weird in the English. Let's talk about this for a second. What Jesus is going to do is provide testimony or witnesses about his own identity, about the claims of who he is in relation to God. And interestingly, this this little bit that follows, it's kind of filled with all this legal terminology. So it's probably important for us to think to, to get that in our brains, think about whatever's being talked about here, th- kind of get that image of a court of law just to, to better understand the lingo. But he begins by stating the obvious. Any testimony that he's going to give about himself is not acceptable in any legal court. Now, I know we allow things like that in America. It's usually advised against because we usually, you know, cause ourselves problems. But uh, here, it wasn't allowed at all. First century Israel, boom, not allowed. Now, what's important when he says, my testimony is not true, we shouldn't be thinking of that as if his testimony is therefore false. That's That's not what is being said here. What Jesus says about himself is, in fact, true. It's just not valid or acceptable legally in a legal environment that you you can't claim on your own behalf. There have to be witnesses. So Jesus has claimed that healing the man was not a violation of the Sabbath, and, and his reasoning was he's just doing what he sees the Father doing. He's also claimed that he will do even greater things. And that was the end of our last podcast, bringing about the resurrection of the dead. And so now he's going to provide the testimony or the witnesses. I think that's important that Jesus is setting this up because, I mean, I don't know a lot about previous figures in Jewish history who rose up and claimed to be a Messiah. They may have even had supernatural elements to their life with healings yeah. and miracles and things, but it turns out that they weren't the Messiah. But I can just picture some of those making that claim without having witnesses to defend who they are and what their message is. And I I just think that, you know, as this individual that we all are staking our lives and our trust and loyalty to, 
the fact that he's setting up people to defend his identity and his authority is a really good point. Yeah, it's important to see that um, interaction, how, how Jesus is defending among his own people in his own place, in his own time. It's, it's, it's a good image. So let's see what he says here. We'll get to verse 32. And actually, uh-oh, already it feels like we're a little bit out of, this, this is weird. So verse 32 says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, the reason that's a little bit problematic is because as we're reading, it's really difficult to tell is this just a setup for what's going to follow in verse 33 when he starts talking about John the Baptist? Or is this more like a preview of the big ending where he's actually talking about God? It's really hard to, to, to fall down on one side and go, yep, that's what he's doing. And so, I mean, for me personally, I've actually, depending on the day I'm reading it and other things I've studied and whatever, sometimes I, I read it and it's like, nope, nope, I'm pretty convinced. He's talking about John the Baptist there. And then another time it's like, nah, it just seems obvious today. He's talking about God. So <laughs> I don't care what, what side you fall down on. It doesn't really matter. Um, it, it fits with both. Uh, just understand that, you know, people are going to see it both ways. And for mm-hmm. what it's worth today, I'm kind of leaning toward he's talking about God. Whatever. So he gets to verse 33. After having said that, he says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Okay? So just to say it, witness number one, John the Baptist. Now remember, he's speaking to some of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He's reminding them of their own actions and the witness that they received from John the Baptist. Part of that story, you go back, you can see John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28, it started with the, who are you, right? John was claiming to be the forerunner of the Messiah, and then we saw in later stories, uh, like they were centered around the, the uh, disciples, that John was actually pointing him out, saying, yep, that's the guy right there. But He's, he's putting some, some of the work that they've already done back onto themselves. You sent to John. He bore witness to the truth. And then in verse 34, he says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Wow. How crazy is that? Jesus doesn't need John's testimony. In fact, man's testimony is nothing. I mean, you could say it doesn't even count or it doesn't even matter when compared to God's. Yeah, I was just thinking about that earlier with some people potentially contending, well, he could just pull the God card. Why does he need a testimony or a witness when he's God himself? Yeah, exactly. And so... What does Jesus do? He's, he's offering this up simply because they may be more willing to accept it. I imagine many of you are like me and, and you hear something like that and you're going, yikes, no, that's not what we're supposed to do. 
But don't be too quick to judge. Don't think that you don't do this in your everyday life and your relationship with God. It happens. And here's another example. It's another place where we can look at Jesus' actions and go, look, he's showing mercy. Jesus wants them to believe or to be able to believe. He wants them to attain this salvation. And if this can be a way to get them there, he's willing. He's willing to go there, which is amazing and awesome. Yeah, another way of saying that is that just like how God displays this all over the Old Testament, God of Israel is a God who meets his people where they are at in order to bring about life and redemption and righteousness uh, yeah. whatever state of life that his people are in, he meets them right where they're at. And this is a good example of that too. Yeah. Yeah. And there's such an explicit example. You reminded me of that story around Noah and it's always crazy every time I read it. Okay. Why does God say he's going to flood the earth? Because man is only evil continually. Okay, Samuel, trick question. Why does God then say he's never ever going to flood the earth again? <laughs> because they're evil continually yeah it's the same reason and so you can actually see in that that god is going okay i get it i know who you are who you are i know where you're at i know what's going on uh i'm gonna have to modify you know maybe the standards or something or the way i interact with you something while i'm busy working out this real redemption right you you can see Mm -hmm. it in the story it's amazing to me it's amazing But yeah, God does that. And here you see Jesus doing it as he's presenting the witnesses. A little bit more, a little bit more about uh, John the Baptist, verse 35. He says, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. That speaks volumes. How popular was John the Baptist? Must have been pretty popular. <laughs> pretty popular, yeah. He, uh, Jesus is using him because they were willing to accept him. And then if you think about it, when he says uh, he was a burning and shining lamp, John the Baptist was a light, and, and then we could say in the context here, a testimony that they were actually open to. Now, John the Baptist's light, at least comparatively speaking, is dim. It pales in comparison to God's and even some of the things that we're about to see as we continue. But they were willing to accept John. But Samuel, verse 35, it says, he was a burning and shining lamp. We haven't even gotten to the part of the text yet that says anything about John getting arrested or Hmm. anything else. I mean... At this point in the text, and, you know, this is assuming that our orderly sequence, the time sequence is of any real value, this hasn't come up yet, and yet Jesus is already talking about him in the past tense. <laughs> How'd you like that's, to be that guy? <laughs> yeah, that's wild. <laughs> yeah, I'd hate to hear a voice from heaven. Paul, you were blah, blah, blah. Uh-oh, something <laughs> bad just happened. <clears throat> Anyway, I just thought that was interesting to know. So anyway, so there's our first witness, John the Baptist. 
And, and that was one that he thought they might be willing to accept. Then he goes on, get to verse 36. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So witness number two, the works, the very works that he is doing, including the thing that started it all, healing the guy at the pool of Bethesda. So uh, Jesus is claiming that the testimony that he has, this is, this is some of Jesus' own testimony, if you will, the works that he's doing, well, they originate with God. And so, in a sense, it's kind of like indirect God testimony. Therefore, when he says that these works, or the, this uh, testimony is greater than John's, the appropriate response would be Samuel. <laughs> duh. Yeah, duh. Of course it is. So what is God's testimony? Or uh, what might it sound like? Or what might it look like? Well, at least in part, in the context of this story, it looks like the works that Jesus is doing. So what are those works? Uh, we could maybe even step outside this isolated context a little bit, and you could say, well, it could be things like Jesus keeping the law perfectly. I mean, that, that, those are works, if you will, uh, and, and that would be true if you said that. Maybe that's not what we're talking about here. It doesn't, doesn't seem to fit naturally with the context. Or maybe like in context, more in context, we could say this refers to the signs and wonders. Now, we know he's done some in other places, done other things. This started with one specific one. But, I mean, that could be true. Those could be the works that we're talking about. Uh, and that may very well be what's in view here, especially since that's the, the start of the story. Uh, and then we could also just sort of think that, well, you don't have to limit it to necessarily the law or whatever. You could just back way off and go, this is referring to Jesus's entire life. Every single thing that he says, every single thing that he does, he is the living, walking image of God. He is the human. He is the word become flesh, he, right? All of these things that we could say. So every single aspect of his life could be in view here. It would also be true. I don't know if that's what Jesus is trying to bring out, but whatever's meant, this is the greater testimony. It's greater than John's and the origins are with God. Jesus, this, maybe this is what's important. Jesus considers what he's talking about here as something to be recognizable to his listeners. And we might even say recognizable to all. And, and so that's important. They were interested in this John guy. That's one level of testimony. This is a new level of testimony. And this one, it's maybe more universal. Anyone could witness Jesus as a human person living out his life 
the works that he does and 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 recognize okay this this is different this is important special whatever and then i don't know if you remember samuel uh one of the things when uh, nicodemus and jesus were having their little talk mm-hmm. nicodemus started this whole thing out presumably trying to be somewhat complimentary but he made a description of jesus said that he was a teacher that what uh he came or originated from god yeah you are a teacher come from god and so that sort of fits into this whole thing of the recognizable bit let's see verse 37 he continues he says and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me his voice you have never heard his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Witness number three, God himself. It was the Father who sent him. And, and again, I mean, we just talked about that with Nicodemus. You are a teacher come from God. He himself has borne witness. Now, okay, we aren't exactly told how. It's almost like when Jesus says it here in verse 37, 38, we're supposed to just get it. Now, we can go back and look at things. We know that he's done works, signs, wonders, whatever. Uh, we know that he went through the baptism and the anointing. Oh, that was, that was a big deal, right? Uh, but then we also know that God bears witness in some sense through the scriptures themselves. The very things that, that, that the Jews at this time period were very, very, very deeply involved in. But instead of, instead of Jesus elaborating on how it is that God himself has borne witness, what he does instead is show them how they've failed to accept or believe God's witness. And so, let's talk about that a little bit. So he says, voice you have not heard and form you have not seen. Well, we just talked about John uh, baptizing him in the Jordan. And what was the big deal? The heavens opened up and what happened, Samuel? They heard God audibly saying, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Yeah. Yeah, there was a little bit of, you know, question about who exactly saw and heard these things. But nonetheless, that was the story. That was a voice. And then what happened after he said that? Somehow, uh, God made himself manifest. I don't, we, we tried to say that he wasn't literally showing up like a dove, but in the form of how a dove flies and moves, hovers, like, I don't know manifested himself in some way that could be seen. Exactly. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, whatever that means. Uh, So that was something, you know, visible-ish. And so it could be, it could be that Jesus knows some of these guys, recognize them from here, there, whatever. He could actually even be making a little dig at them around the baptism a bit. They may have been there and... And, you know, they're still denying it. But even if it is, okay, I, I, or, or isn't, 
it's more important for us to see the overall point of what's actually being said. So Jesus is, in a sense, calling. They're almost like, uh, is there such a thing as a sub-witness? Can you do that? I don't know. Number one, God has spoken. And whether that's talking about that specific baptism event or other things throughout all history, either way, they have not heard. And God has been visible. Now, whether that's in that specific baptism event and the, you know, the form like a dove, etc., or just throughout all of history, we don't know, but they have not seen. And God has given them the scriptures. And even though they are unbelievably familiar with them, the word, the one that we talked about back in John 1, 1, that agent of God in creation, the word is embodied in those scriptures. And yet, for all their study, for all their effort, it's not abiding in them. So they don't hear him. They don't see him. They don't even have the word that they think they know so well in them. And so the end result is they simply do not believe. They don't believe that Jesus is the one that's sent by God. They don't believe God that he has sent him. They don't believe any of it. Yeah, and I think it's important to also add that this isn't a new problem that (laughs) God's people (laughs) have experienced and displayed over the course of their history as a nation. And Jesus is going to mention this later. I'm actually going to reference where he was referencing it from in the prophets, but Jeremiah prophesizes this to the people in their idolatry and turning away from God. Jeremiah 5, verse 21, he says, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. And that gets into that same thing that you were talking about, how you have these aspects where God has shown himself, but that doesn't mean that it's been taken to heart or that you're experiencing it, you know, intimately. Yeah. Yeah. And that even brings up the whole hearing that isn't just a physiological function, but mm-hmm. it's hearing, listening, obeying, all it's, it's, it, yeah, all of that's tied in there. But we're in the middle of witnesses, so we need to keep going. We got three of them. <laughs> He's going to lay a new one on us. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So witness number four, the scriptures themselves, I'm going to say specifically the Torah. And this, the way Jesus is presenting it, This is now the final or the greatest witness of them all against these people specifically in this argument, right? It's understood by his challengers, the people he's speaking to. The the Torah is understood to be God's expressed will for redemption. And it is his revelation of that redemption plan. It's, we could even say, it's God's direct 
testimony regarding Messiah. Now, how many of you think of your Old Testament that way? That's probably pretty rare, right? Mm -hmm. But that is important. You need to see your Old Testament that way. You need especially to see the Torah that way. It's God's direct testimony regarding redemption and his Messiah. One day, one day, we're going to do podcasts about Old Testament stuff too. Oh boy, that's going to be good. Yeah, that'll be good. So anyway, here's Jesus showing them their folly. They search the scriptures thinking that in them they will have or gain or find eternal life. The crazy thing is, they're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. They bear witness of this Messiah. The problem is, with all their searching, they still don't find him. Yeah, I think it's so important to add that tidbit that their intent is is right and correct and true and just. Um, it's just, we, we've mentioned it here and there a little bit throughout these episodes, but this uh, Midrashic aspect of there being two messiahs, the Messiah son of Joseph that's suffering servant and the Messiah son of David conquering king. Yeah. They were expecting, hoping for one of those messiahs, probably contextually because of all the oppression that they were experiencing, you know, within being under Roman rule and all the generations of pagan rule in exile. Uh, So it's understandable that they wanted that other messiah to come. But that's why I I think that uh, they didn't find this messiah because that's not what they were expecting and hoping for. Yeah, I, and to to beat them up or to look at them like they're dumb or, you know, I, man, that's just wrong. You you are not being honest with yourself. And this, we can see this so often just in the way people read their Bible today. They go to their Bible with a preconceived idea of what it says. They read it simply to confirm that it does say what they thought it said. No confirmation bias here. And then they're just happy, moving on their way. They're not going to accept something that someone else would say, something they might point out or a discrepancy or just get them to think about a thing. And it's it's a problem, I think, in Christianity, certainly in America, I'm guessing probably around the world, not as much as in America, but around the world. It's, it's just, a th- and we've got to, Man, get off our high horse and just try and put yourself in their shoes. Be a little bit um, empathetic. Uh, give them the benefit of the doubt. Try to imagine what it's like to be them. And it's not that crazy. You should feel for them, right? You, you Almost like a grief. Oh, man, if only they would get it. Instead of looking at them like they're dumb, because if the situation was reversed, you'd probably be the dumb one, too. And of course, when I say you, I mean me. (laughs) And I think a good challenge as we're reading through this is to find the areas where we can emulate what the people were doing that were really good. In this case, are, you know, asking ourselves, are we searching the scriptures to find life in God and Messiah? And then do we see the opportunities to hopefully like correct 
the mistakes that they yeah. didn't do well, uh, you know, in the opportunities that we have uh, to not refuse Messiah and to um, truly see him in, in your searchings. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the Christian walk. It's just not as easy as it looks. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah. The free gift that only costs you your life. You'll hear that many, many more times before mm-hmm. we're done. All right. Let's try and go on. So he's laid out the witnesses. And how's he going to wrap this up? We get to verse 41. He says this. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Wow. If they, if they were understanding what he was saying, that's some powerful stuff right there. Mm-hmm. So number one, Jesus doesn't receive glory from people. Does that mean that no one actually gives him glory or offers him glory? No. He's saying that he doesn't accept glory from people because he he does receive or accept glory from God. And if you're getting glory from God, what value is there in accepting glory from people? And especially in this case, when we imagine, you know, the uh, just sort of like the, the natural realities at this moment when he's saying this, he's a human. So bad, bad, bad for human to receive glory from human. And now this glory, I, we probably should mention this. I, I remember, Samuel, you and I have talked about glory before, and we were uh, talking about things like God's presence. We were thinking more like the tabernacle, the temple, uh, when the, the shepherd's out in the field, you know, all that. So this glory, I think we need to understand that slightly different sense. This is more like distinction and honor, not necessarily that glory of God, because again, he's standing there talking to him as a human, right? Now, this isn't contradicting, like in a lot of Paul's epistles to the different assemblies of, of God in the, throughout the nations, how he ends a lot of his letters where he, I'm being simplistic here, but he says things like, all glory and honor goes to God through Jesus, and etc., how are we to compare those two with like Paul admonishing people to give glory? But in this case, you're saying that Jesus doesn't receive glory in this sense. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that kind of goes to what I said. Um, the, the, the idea that this isn't talking about whether or not people do give him glory. That's a real thing. We, uh, either verbally or through our lives, uh, other actions, Whatever it is we do, we can indeed give glo- give God. Glo- <laughs> How about that, ladies and gentlemen? We have a winner. <laughs> oh, I got to pull it together. That was good. Yeah. 
we can indeed give God glory. And in the same way, we can give the Son glory. Um, This is just a matter of Jesus trying to say, this isn't what I'm about. I'm not here to somehow get glory from you. It doesn't make it bad. It doesn't make it wrong. It doesn't, it's not as if it doesn't exist. It's more, look, I get my glory from God. I have one single source, and it is the ultimate and perfect source, and therefore, I don't need these others. And that doesn't make the things that we do somehow frivolous or unimportant or goofy or weird. No, it's all good. So what Paul's talking about, what Paul's doing We are, in a sense, giving God glory, ultimately, whether our aim is toward God the Father himself or toward his Son. If you accept me, you accept him, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, Jesus is just sort of separating himself out, saying, hey, this isn't what I'm about. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, I hate to say care about, that isn't right either. It's just... He has that single source, and so any other source is kind of irrelevant, and it doesn't make it invalid. It just makes it unnecessary from Jesus's perspective. So he's getting that distinction and honor from God. Okay. Now, he states that he knows that the love of God is not within them. Well, how does he know? Well, he just named a bunch of stuff earlier, and He knows that they're not receiving him. See, he's here in the Father's name. And they don't even accept that. I mean, bring it into a modern context, that would be like if you had had a, a legal power of attorney and you went somewhere, you were trying to get something accomplished, and whoever you were working with kept going, nope, sorry, I'm not going to accept that. I refuse to accept it. But... But it's a legal thing. I mean, you you have to accept it. That's what this is for. Nope, not going to do it. He's come in the Father's name, and they're simply refusing to accept that. It's kind of crazy. But, you know, if you don't see it, understand it, recognize it, whatever, uh, well, then, I mean, that's, don't be too quick to judge. Mm -hmm. And then, this is kind of funny, Jesus uses some irony on them, you know, to get out the wrinkles. They regularly accept others who come in their own name. Like that's worth anything, right? If I showed up, Samuel, I am here in the name of Paul. You know, me. (laughs) What? What? (laughs) And Jesus is saying, yeah, but you'll accept a guy like that. I'm here in the Father's name and you're not accepting me, but you'll accept that guy. It's crazy. Jesus is getting to the heart of the issue. They're seeking the wrong thing. Samuel, if there was something missing and you didn't look for it, what are the chances are you're going to find it? I would say pretty low. Yeah. Rarely going to find a thing if you're not looking for it. They are seeking glory among themselves instead of seeking the true glory that comes from God alone. Now, this manifests in them, and and we're going to see this a lot in the Gospels, it manifests as them keeping the letter of the law, 
but not keeping the true meaning behind the law. And okay, we should we should read this. Samuel Luke 11:42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Yeah. So, and oh, it's so important that you see what was said right there. He said that they were obeying the law, tithing their mint, rue, and herb. And he said that they should have been doing it. He was acknowledging that that was correct. But he also says that they were neglecting justice and the love of God. And they should have done those. He should have done both. They shouldn't have neglected either. They were properly keeping the letter of the law, tithing even to this, you know, like the nth degree, but they were ignoring justice and love. And and I'm going to use this phrase. I, I think we've done it before. I'm sure we're going to do it a bunch again, but it's so important that you get this. They understood what the law said, but they did not understand what the law was saying. You hearing the difference there, Samuel? Yeah, um, I kind of have a question. I, w- I want to make sure we finish this section, but uh, do you mind if I do ask it. you something? Um, you said that um, they were seeking glory among themselves instead of seeking the true glory that comes from God alone. And I know that you and I separately have been learning about these different sects of Judaism specifically the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we recently have been learning that those two groups could not be any more different than they already are, uh, with the Sadducees almost being like this socio-political cult that bought their way into, you know, having control of the priesthood and um, really not having any real business of... Uh, finding the deeper, truer meaning of God's word um, right. through those other uh, rabbinical sources that the Pharisees are known for. And then the Pharisees themselves are seen as those that really uphold wanting to seek after God and his law. I mean, I know they didn't do everything correctly, um, yeah. but how how can we find that balance of seeing the Pharisees as the better of the two guys with they they do have a bent towards following God and his law but then like what you said how does that aspect bleed into seeking glory among themselves because I, I see it both ways like I I can see them wanting to follow God's law the letter because you know their ancestors told them about what happened when they didn't do that. It, it resulted in exile and then being driven from their land. Um, but then, I'm, maybe I'm struggling seeing the the other side of it. No, I think this is a good question. Um, so they they had ever since the exile this renewed fervor for the scriptures themselves, and and we see that they're they're trying to carry it out. The best that they can, and and all the minute detail, all of it, all of it, 
what I think that we're talking about here, seeking glory among themselves, is this idea that they were doing the law, if we could say it that way, they were doing it so that other people would see them doing it, so that other people would go, wow, you sure are a good law keeper, and they would feel elevated among their peers. They were seeking glory by keeping the letter of the law. And because of that, they got so wrapped up in the letter, even though the Pharisees brought us all kinds of great uh, understanding. That, I mean, they really did. We, we, we have to be careful not to treat them like they're, they're dumb. And at the same time, they still missed Underneath all of it, this idea of the love and the justice and the mercy. Well, let me stop there. Is that addressing what you were talking about, Samuel, or is there more? I think so. So you're saying that they they still could have been wanting to follow the letter of the law because they knew the repercussions of what that happens with their standing with God in the land and everything yes. that didn't happen, but at the same time they were also doing it to to want to receive honor and attention uh, from the people. Yeah, like almost every bad thing, it started out good. Yeah. And then it gets messed up by human goofiness. In this case, you'd probably have to call it pride or something, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. Okay. Exactly. All right, well, we got one little bit. I think we can finish this chapter of John, so we may as well do that. Uh, verse 45. Oh, boy, he's going to get him good. Here he goes. <clears throat> Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So, again, kind of like a a statement of mercy, if you will, Jesus assures them that he won't be their accuser before God. Kind of good news, but not great. (laughs) Because Moses already stands as their accuser. And in this case, I, I... I mean, obviously, we understand why we're speaking of this like as Moses personified, but we're really talking about Moses's writings. We're talking about the Torah. Mm-hmm. Moses will accuse them. And, and, and what we're talking about here is they've placed their hope in the Torah, but their own misunderstanding is leading them to destruction. If Shakespeare were here joining us on the podcast... He might say that they were hoist with their own petard. (laughs) That's a whoosh. Yeah. Well, you'd have to go check out Shakespeare, find out what he's talking about there. That shows how much Shakespeare I've read. Yeah. Surprisingly, it has something to do with bombs. (laughs) Crazy, right? Anyway, so their own understanding is leading them to destruction. And again... The emphasis is that if they truly understood Moses' words, and, and we could say if they believed Moses, then they would believe 
Jesus. The Torah speaks of him, Jesus, Messiah. The Torah leads to Jesus, Messiah. In fact, and this also may be one of the great things that we say today, Jesus is the end of the law. Now, a bunch of people just heard me say that, and they did not hear what I just said. When you hear that phrase, when you see it in Scripture, we are not talking about the cessation of the law, like as in the law comes to an end, to a stop. That's not what that phrase means at all. It means that Jesus is the end of the law, as in the goal, the target. When you see Jesus living, breathing, walking, talking, acting, everything about his life, what you are seeing is a physical manifestation of the law, the Torah. Jesus is the end. He's the goal. He's the target. And we need to approach it the same way. So, If they do not believe the thing on which they've set their hope, how could they ever believe anything Jesus says? Now, okay, that probably sounds a little bit hopeless, uh, but, I mean, all of us listening probably should know as well as anyone that it's not hopeless. Uh, The situation, any situation, could seem extremely dire, but it's nothing for God and a willing vessel. When you are willing the things that God can do. Ooh, that sounded a little Dr. Seuss there for a moment. The <laughs> things that God can do are, they're beyond comprehension. They just are. Mm. And I think it's also hopeful to think about uh, that just because that Jesus is saying that these people among the Jewish leadership are not believing um, based on how their relationship is with the words of Moses in the Torah, that does not mean that there is not a remnant, there's not a portion of Israel that isn't seeking for the right things and isn't seeking truly. Um, I think that it would be a yeah. a grave misconception to assume that just because Jesus is saying this here that he is equating it to all of Israel or all of the people are in this boat that... Uh, I, I don't know. I just believe that among the leadership here who's not doing it right, that there were, you know, potentially common people among Israel who were looking into the Torah and the writings and the prophets and they were hoping for Messiah. And we even get accounts of some of those people when they had an experience with Jesus and, you know, they, they reacted positively. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I, that, I just wanted to say that, too. Yeah, well, yeah, and it's a great point, because we know that that's coming as we continue the story, but you're talking about right here, right now in the story, and I think you're absolutely right. We've talked about the different uh, sects within Judaism. We've got, uh, mostly we talk about Sadducees and Pharisees. We've mentioned the Zealots and the Essenes. Uh, There's one that we didn't talk about that I'm not sure when it's going to come up, but that's going to be a good one, the Hasidim. So these are great. And in each one, you're going to find strengths and weaknesses. And much of what you're talking about, the people, uh, you're going to find some of that in the Essenes. You're going to find some of that in the Hasidim. Uh, 
And, and that's great. And yes, those people exist. They do. Uh, and in context, obviously, he's he knows he's not talking to them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a great point. And, and that and another big point that 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 talks to speaks to throughout all of the story, beginning to end, is this idea of remnant. Okay, obviously Genesis chapter one and two. Okay, you're not going to see much remnant there. Okay, but just about. Any time after the garden, it doesn't take hardly any time at all to recognize this concept of the remnant and how it is a thread that just passes all the way through. And you, Samuel, me, you, the listener, everybody, you want to be part of the remnant. Mm-hmm. And we'll see that as we go. Anyway, yeah, I don't know, Samuel, I think we've filled up this container on to the next one. Anything else? No, I'm good. I think we've hit a good stopping point for this week. All right. Yeah, the next one should be good because we're going to go back to more like uh, multiple Gospels at the same time, trying to work through together. So uh, finishing up a section of John is always good news because, man, it always just seems like it's deep and hard and tough and you just got to spend the time on it. So Mm -hmm. anyway, let's call it. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie dokie most podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you are notified when our episodes release on Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time so that you never miss an episode. We also would really appreciate it if you left us a review on your podcasting app to let us know how this podcast is impacting your life in a positive way. Our podcast is now available on all podcasting platforms. So please make sure you check us out on your electronic device. You can also visit our official website at okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.